What's up, everybody? This is Justin Flinter coming to you live from Northern Virginia with the Justin Flinter Podcast by My Mentor Medicine. This month's Ask the Expert interview, we sat down with Jeff Millison, academic dean at the Virginia University of Integrative Medicine. Jeff is an acupuncturist and oriental medicine practitioner at his practice in Ellicott City, Maryland, called the River Hill Wellness Center. He is also, as I mentioned, the academic dean at the Virginia University of Integrative Medicine. Not only is he an amazing practitioner, he is also unbelievably passionate about the future of this medicine, and he has been a driving force in the development of high-level educational programs at major institutions across the country. He has also helped coordinate cooperative relationships between acupuncture schools and major medical institutions such as John Hopkins and he now sits at the academic helm of one of the top acupuncture and oriental medicine schools on the East Coast. If you are a practitioner of oriental medicine, or even if you are a beginning student at an acupuncture oriental medicine school, Jeff reveals in this interview some of the most important areas we all need to focus on to preserve what we have accomplished and strengthen our core of this medicine together. I thank you for listening to this month's Ask the Expert interview here on the Justin Flinter Podcast. And be sure to tune in next month for November's interview. Now, sit back, relax, as you join our conversation with Jeff. Good evening. I'm Justin Flinter. And this is the Ask the Expert show by My Metro Medicine, and I have this month's guest with us, Jeff Millison. Uh, very excited to have him here, and before we get into our questioning, I'll tell you a little bit about him. Some of you out there probably know who he is already. Whether you're a student or whether you're an acupuncturist, you might have run into him a couple times at various different places, organizations, schools, and I'm going to read them to you right now. So Jeff's background, uh, probably if I went off of just index cards alone, I would probably have about a stack this thick. but. I'm going to be brief. All right. Good. So Jeff brings over two decades of experience in academia within the field of acupuncture and oriental medicine. He was the academic director of acupuncture and oriental medicine at the Maryland University of Integrative Health. For those of you who are not sure where that is, and you've gone there before, obviously Thai Sophia. So Thai Sophia Institute is the, uh, the older name. And a fa he was a faculty member at the institution since 1992. He was a clinical supervisor, and he is also a chair of the CCAOM. Is that correct? Yep. All right. So the Council of Colleges of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine. Uh, he was on the curriculum committee <coughs> there, and he was also a member of ACOM, so ACAOM, for those of you who are familiar with that. And he was working on the first professional doctorate task force, which is a big uh, area of focus now for a lot of schools, it seems. And he has also served on the board of the Maryland Acupuncture Society. He's a co-founder and co-director of the River Hill Wellness Center up in Ellicott, Maryland. Ellicott City, I'm Ellicott sorry. City. Ellicott City. He's also a graduate of the traditional acupuncture institute, now MUIH. Should I say the year? No. <laughs> no. Okay, <laughs> we won't say the We'll hold off on that. Uh, he has a background in English as well as holistic psychology, and he is now, as we're sitting here, the academic dean at the Virginia University of Integrative Medicine. So it is my pleasure, my honor to have you here today. Um, and I know you for some time now because I, being a student of MUIH, I was 
learning around 2010 when I started, and I think I met you in 2009, and mm -hmm. I remember vividly mm. walking into the large room to see all of the people to talk about the acupuncture program, oh and you were one of the people that quote unquote convinced me. Oh, fantastic! To join. I didn't so know that I'm until this moment. Very, very glad to have yeah. experienced that, and I'm very glad to be here today. Likewise. So, uh, Jeff, I'm going to start off with a couple questions. Okay. And I want the audience to also be aware that if you also have questions, to please go ahead and send them in, and we'll get to them as quickly as we can. Uh, so my first question for you, Jeff, is when did you decide to become an acupuncturist and what sort of influenced you to make that decision? I was uh, probably the, 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 the seminal event that inspired me and moved me towards becoming an acupuncturist was personal health experience. I was in a, a pretty significant car accident when I was uh, 16, so back in 1979, now I've told my age, um, <laughs> and um, I, had a, I was in the hospital for a few months and I was having a very difficult time healing from my injuries uh, and Western medicine was just not doing the trick in terms of getting me out of the hospital and getting me back on my feet and it wasn't really until I had acupuncture that my health turned around in a pretty dramatic fashion. So. Um, that personal experience is really what turned my head towards the, you know, the efficacy of acupuncture just because of that personal experience. Um, right. and, at, and after that, I began to study the, the profession, study the medicine. And it was really then that I got very attracted to the philosophy of Chinese medicine, which I know you're very familiar of, mostly sort of a Taoist foundation uh, looking at how people are intrinsic, you know, all life is intrinsically linked, that natural law really guides all life, if you will, um, the importance of self-care. It was looking, it was studying the philosophy of Chinese medicine that really got me attracted beyond just the, the fact that it worked for me. Right. Um, it got me attracted to studying it more myself, and so then I ended up going to school uh, in 1989. I think that's a lot of Con there's a lot of commonalities in your story and what of other students, at least here at the school that I've yeah. talked with, uh, they have <clears> some <throat> sort of incident that they go and experience acupuncture, whether it's their first choice or whether it's their last choice. Right. They end up in an acupuncture clinic uh, and for some reason they have this magnificent experience. Yeah. Some of the times, not all of the times, but usually over time, they, they go and they see they have, see an acupuncturist, they have a treatment, and then they have a complete transition. Yeah. Uh, so then they make the jump into, I want to learn more about this, yes, this theory. Exactly. Yep. So having gone through that experience, uh, is there a particular person also that maybe you touched base with at that point in your life and said, what is this stuff about and where can I go to school <coughs> for this? Is there a particular individual in mind? Probably the, um, the president of Thai Sophia. Uh, when, I, when I was at school, it was called the Tradition Traditional Acupuncture Institute changed its name to Thai Sophia, which I think you're familiar with, and then right. it's now the Maryland University of Integrative Health. And the president um, of that institution during the time that I was pursuing the school um, and was also the co-founder of the institution, Bob Duggan, um, along with Diane Connolly, founded uh, that uh, school. And it really were, you know, very key figures in promoting acupuncture in this country. And uh, Bob is a phenomenal human being. He passed yeah. a couple of years ago, and um, just for the community. absolutely. Yeah. And uh, tre you know, Bob is was a, was a true treasure. And 
he um, was probably the main sort of influential character for me to move into academia because I was a faculty member after I graduated for about seven years. I was teaching a lot of courses and doing clinical supervision and uh, because of that serving on faculty committees which is sort of a common way, yeah, exactly. that <coughs> a common th extension of, of doing right. classes right. and it was through my work in committees that uh, Bob Duggan reached out to me and said he thought that I should consider applying for the new job that I just opened up. And uh, at the time, I was incredibly busy with a new practice. I had just started the Riverhead Wellness Center, uh, multidisciplinary integrative wellness center, uh, and uh, about 17 practitioners. And I was very, very busy wow. with that yeah. <coughs> venture. And I basically told him no. And he kept at it because he's <laughs> an incredibly persistent individual. He was a very persistent man. To his credit. Sure. Uh, yeah. And uh, he eventually just kept at it and wore me down. And uh, I eventually, uh, you know, said gladly yes. And that was right. uh, back in 2000. So uh, yeah. that's how that's what got me involved in academic administration, essentially. Yeah. yeah. I think. Bob had. A, I have a strong inclination that Bob had a major influence on a lot of people That's who true. will watch this or who are watching this yeah. uh, to make the jump into the field of this medicine in some way, shape, or form. So uh, let me let me move on to a little bit about acupuncture and education, as you've already just briefly mentioned. Uh, I'm curious, uh, what are three areas that you think uh, in this field of medicine, acupuncture and oriental medicine? Uh, that you believe are the, have the biggest potential for growth over, <coughs> we'll say, the next 20 years that might impact the healthcare industry. What what three areas do you think are coming forward or well, are being grown now? I would say one is that the there's a big movement in our country over the last five to ten years uh, towards greater um, integrative health, integrative medicine, and in fact, you know. This this institution, you know, the Virginia University of Integrative Medicine, is an example of that. Moving from initially being called the Virginia University of Oriental Medicine and moving to identifying as an institution of integrative learning, and I think that that is a trend. Um, it's a very big trend, I think, in this country, not only at the educational level but certainly at the clinical level. Um, I think it mirrors that. There's a lot more hospitals across the country that are moving. You know, initially it was called sort of alternative medicine, and then it moved to complementary medicine. And what do you think <clears> the <throat> reason of these transitions are? Like moving from alternative to complementary to now we have integrative. I mean, it sounds like we're allowed into the party yeah. I now, think in it's, a sense. I <laughs> think I think that's a reasonable way to to look at it. I think initially we were, it was recognized that uh, acupuncture and massage and maybe chiropractic could be in that and. Uh, herbalism, what have you, you know, were other therapies that people were doing. There was a couple of, you know, seminal studies that were <clears throat> done in the 80s that basically showed how much, um, how much the public was, were utilizing, how much the public were spending and utilizing mm -hmm. those modalities. And I think at that point, once it was, you know, that the evidence really showed that that was a reality, <laughs> that it existed, that it initially was framed as, well, it exists, it's an alternative, and so it was called alternative medicine. Right. And yeah. then they saw that it could actually work in conjunction with Western medical care, and that it was complementary, and now we, we're, we're at the table, um, yes, and exactly. part of teams, and, right. th and as that has occurred, you know, integrative, um, integratively, um, I think the new term is integrative health, integrative medicine. So I think that's a really big trend. It's clear that it, that is going on. Um, I could give lots of examples of it, but it's just that's the reality. And I think 
<clears throat> that's a big movement in the profession. And I think that uh, the schools across the country generally have done a really good job of educating practitioners and educating students, ultimately graduates, to being excellent clinicians. But I don't think that the schools have done as good of a job over the years at the master's level at educating students about how to integrate into the Western medical uh, sort of larger right. establishment. And there's a new degree, and I think, you know, I think you referenced it before, about there's a new doctorate degree, a new right. professional doctorate degree that I actually worked, I was, I was honored to be able to work on the task force that helped to develop some of the competencies um, for that degree. That degree is really all about uh, helping uh, practitioners be able to work in partnership and in concert with and integratively with um, Western medicine. Right. So how to speak the language of Western medicine, how to function on integrative teams. And that is key when you want to actually integrate. We yeah. both have to know each side. So is there sure. also education happening on the other side, as some people usually refer to, yeah. the East and the West? Yeah, is just the West being educated Absolutely, as well? yeah. There's more and more, uh, you know, classes, if not full courses, on um, you know, complementary modalities, um, integrative modalities. I just had a meeting uh, uh, with the uh, COO here at VUAM, John Yu, um, at, a at a local hospital, and uh, it's run by Hopkins, and Hopkins uh, is actually pulling in guest lecturers from right. fields and modalities like acupuncture to educate their docs, uh, their, <coughs> their, their doctoral students, to, to be able to, to know what these modalities are, what are the strengths excuse me, what are the weaknesses, and how to refer, essentially, and how to work integratively. So it's happening, I think, both ways. Right. So I think that's one of the key things, uh, is, okay. is, is the rise of integrative health, um, integrative medicine in this country. I'd say, secondly, uh, another big opportunity is more community health clinics. Um, there's just as a news report, uh, I think a couple days ago, about how CVS is moving into uh, a greater sort of proponent of, of and creation of minute clinics. Walmart has been pushing that. Uh, Walgreens, uh, Whole Foods is actually discussing it as well. Um, yeah, I mean, you have Target, <coughs> you have Walmart, you have Costco, they have eye doctors. They exactly. Have, I mean, they're going to have everything. Pretty yeah. soon you'll be able to deliver babies in these places. <laughs> That's right. All we know. And pick up but some bottled water. Yeah, at the same and, time. and get acupuncture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So because. because you're shopping, <laughs> Baby, come home. Get your dry cleaning. Yeah, I mean, I, that is a, a true, you know, sort of spike in our country. Um, is is of those minute of those minute clinics, and I think the vision is is that as healthcare costs are spiraling out of control, which right. is you know on the front pages of the news every sure. single day in this country, um, the need to find a different way to serve the public is key and. Absolutely, acupuncture uh, from a cost-effective standpoint related to Western medicine is pennies on the dollar um, in terms of how much how much people are spending. Um, it's it's a very it's a relatively low-cost modality, mm -hmm. and so it's widely predicted that at the at these community clinics, at the these increasing number of community clinics, that other modalities will start to become integrated into right. the the teams, the medical, the, the healthcare teams. Acupuncture is is actually been explicitly discussed on a, on a number of times as being one of the modalities that would likely be a part of so it. So we've come from integration now that the schools are starting to build these programs off of to understand various modalities outside of acupuncture-oriented medicine. Now we're starting to develop clinics, yes, just community health, 
What's the third area? I think the third area, I mean, you you know, I had given this a little bit of thought prior to this interview. I mean, the third area to me, I think, is um, acupuncture's use uh, for pain. You know, that, you know, for just looking at the, the, you know, the front page of the news or, you know, the sort of the top news stories, you know, over the last year in health. I mean, one of the key, one of the key ones is just the opioid crisis in this country. And Chris, and it's crystal clear that that the medical establishment needs to discover other ways, non-pharmacological, non-opioid ways of um, helping people with pain. And acupuncture is an ideal candidate for that. It's actually been explicitly discussed um, in some of the health healthcare reform bills that have occurred. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, as we step into that in a greater way. I think it improves our visibility and our viability um, as a profession. I think we're well positioned to really serve our communities in that regard. I agree. Because even there's some government organizations, the VA and whatnot, are now beginning to accept a lot more of these types of treatment. And there have been other ones that have been using it in the past. Walter Reed has utilized it at their their location and various other places. But I agree. I think pain management is humongous uh, in terms of how we can benefit. I think that's a humongous place also for us to start in building this integrative and also these community agree. health organizations. Yeah, 100% agree. So we have three things that we can see potential growth for. Now let's take a look at three things that might have been holding us back maybe to this point and may, we still may be gripping onto. What are the things that you might think are holding back the profession of acupuncture and oriental medicine? I think they relate you know, to those three things. I mean, really, as one, one is what's holding us back to some degree is that I think schools, again, at the master's level have done a fabulous job of graduating, you know, like superb clinicians and not as good of a job at graduating practitioners, you know, who have the skills to be able to integrate into the Western medical establishment. And that's changing, I think, at the master's level to some degree and certainly the professional doctorate, Mm. the competencies are all about that, learning how to speak the language, being bilingual. Has speak the language of Western medicine, learning about hospital right. systems and healthcare systems, and how to be a team member, um, sharing electronic records, and learning how to you know. You know so this is to, the integrative approach, and I think a lot of this is sort of new playing fields for even Western medicine practitioners. It's true. Because We're all learning together. them and to get like the yeah. the, in, the, in, uh, the introduction of technology, wearable technology, yeah. uh, electronic health records to actually keep track all for the sake of the patient and healthcare yeah. in general, but it can be quite costly. There's a lot of things that are holding us back. It's true, and, and you said something I think is very insightful, I completely agree with, which is that uh, Western medicine is, lear- is, trying to, is learning this at the same time. Yeah. Um, we're learning it together. I mean, I've been a part of you know, some uh, partnerships that have been created with um, hospitals in this region with, uh, with acupuncture schools, and in fact, you know, the discussions once we're sitting at the table are really about figuring it out together, and th- there is no expert. We're just learning together, and I think we're breaking ground in that way. I think right. p- probably people will look back at this time in 30 years and see you know, this as sort of like, I would hope, and I, I predict, the sort of the foundation of a, of a pretty big movement in this country along I those lines. Agree. You can see it in some places. Do you have other ideas for things that might be uh, holding us back that you think we could Two things, past? two things. One is, uh, I think uh, research literacy uh, is, a, is a place that's, I think, has held us back to some degree. Being able- Specific areas of research? Yeah, being a, practitioners uh, learning how to uh, not only access research in terms of, you know, evidence-based or evidence-informed practice, but what I'm more pointedly just speaking about is doing research and being a part of 
things like outcomes-based research, um, and that is ultimately what is going that is going to sway certain people to look at acupuncture in, in a more viable fashion. Um, it's happening a lot more in the in the east and right. less so in the west. You can, it, you can go online right now and you can search for different uh, forms of research for acupuncture and oriental medicine. Oh, yeah. You can already pull up thousands and sure. thousands of research. So are there areas that we may not be looking into that we might <clears throat> want to? I uh, think that probably um, around pain, but I think one of the key things is that the type of research that's being done um, is not necessarily at the level that um, that this culture, that Western Western sort of science in terms of their evaluation of research, I think that uh, we could step up our game, if you will, um, okay. as in, in this country, um, to put out research I think that's more widely accepted. So I think that's a key thing. Okay. And then thirdly, uh, I would say, you know, the, the membership, the membership organization uh, on the national level um, for acupuncture is uh, not firing on all cylinders, if I'm going to put it really nicely. Um, it's, it's a lot of room for growth. And membership organizations traditionally in, in professions are not, not just ways to sort of get cheaper uh, benefits or, you know, insurance, but ultimately they're the, they're the voice of the profession. So not just in terms of like helping with media campaigns and PR and exposure, but equally important uh, legislatively. And we just do not, as a profession, have a strong membership organization right now. And quite frankly, the people who are on the membership organization would echo that. And that's an area, to your initial question, I think that if we could strengthen that, it will be to our benefit. Are you speaking to like state uh, memberships, like uh, the but local Virginia? I'm, I'm main, more national? Na more national. More national. Yeah, this, the state some of the state organizations are just doing a fantastic job, right. I think, um, some less so. Um, and that's to be expected. But more importantly, it's the national voice. It's the national organization. That's, that's going to produce the most movement for yeah. these first three things. Yeah, I think so. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So let's continue with a little bit more about education. And what can students do right now? Because I think there's a lot of people viewing that might be students in general. Uh, and I know there's some just across the hallway. <laughs> they might be peeking in the door. Uh, what can students do right now to start preparing for changes to come uh, in the healthcare industry uh, along the lines of what you've talked about? So we have integrative medicine, we have community health, so those are good labels that we can put on what we could potentially work towards, but what are some actions that they could possibly take while they're in school or while they're getting out of school? Uh, and also together with technology, whether it's wearable technology, whether it's electronic health records, how can we sort of put acupuncture, I guess, in the spotlight and say, wow, this is this is new, this is neat. Yeah. So what are your thoughts? I guess the uh, first thing I'd say was, from a non-technological standpoint would be just to stretch, you know, to outside of one's comfort zone and really mm -hmm. uh, seek to make connections um, with not just potential patients, but also with uh, a local sort of, the local medical establishment to try to build alliances and partnerships with and relationships, really, it comes mm -hmm. down to that, with um, doctors, nurses, mm -hmm. uh, chiropractors, right. uh, physical therapists in the community to be so able like to... old school network. Yeah, 100%. To it actually, to, to say, you know, what, to, sure. to try to explain what they do um, and to work on their elevator speech, so to, you know, so to speak, in terms of uh, how, to speak, how to talk about what they do in a way that's concise and clear and and um, and uh, accurate and uh, <clears throat> so I think networking is a really big piece and that's a sort of a low tech and on the tech side 
you know, it's, it's stating the obvious, but uh, social media is, you know, here we are, right? Yeah, uh, social media exactly is, a, is right. very important, uh, I, would th I would say, for, you know, all practitioners, specifically new practitioners. Um, it is the way that a lot of people, um, you know, get their news and information. And uh, I think to, you know, to be able, you know, I'm functionally illiterate when it comes to social media myself, so I'm not the best example of that. But, I, but if I'm trying to, like, guide students, which was your question about something that they would benefit from, I think um, that's very, it's very important to become more adept at communicating through uh, social media and learning, learning the ropes around that. Lastly, uh, you mentioned EHR. I, I referenced it earlier. Right. Um, that is becoming the industry standard, without a doubt. Um, and not only does that provide a way to a platform that want that a shared platform to integrate with Western establishment. There's also some just great uh, EHRs that are that have been created that are just specific that are customized for the uh, oriental medicine practitioner and an acupuncturist. Yeah, I know there's more that are sort of bursting through the seams, yeah. if you will. I've utilized some in my Have own you? Okay. clinic yeah. uh, in the past, but they're probably outdated by now. There weren't that many, but also, I mean, it's, it's nice even just as a patient yourself to just go to the office and then come home and then check online and say, okay, I need my immunization records. Because I mean, how many places when you, whether you go to get involved with some kind of activity, I know my kids do this. So my kids will get involved in an activity and they'll say, can you please send us the immunization record? I'm like, oh great, now I have to call the doctor's office yeah. and show up and pay money for the paper. Now, you can just get it right from your phone. Sure. I can log in, pull it all off of yeah. there and send it to them within five minutes. Yeah. And and clearly if we're if we're thinking about things that will will in thirty years we'll look back on and we'll think to ourselves. <laughs> yeah. I don't I think that about was the that right now. I, I mean, mean <laughs> I'm that, still yeah. getting started, but at the same time. Yeah, Me too, yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, so, it's it's happening, right? And it so is. so to get on the ground Constantly. relatively ground floor of that and really start familiarizing oneself with it. And what I can say also just briefly about EHR is is it sounds, you know, like a fancy title and, and it sounds potentially like something that would be a barrier for some people because it's too much to sort of grab hold to. Yeah. What I can say is that there are some really affordable EHRs that are not only um, provide a shared platform with Western medicine and not only is it to get it because it's industry standard, but have great resources built in. Mm -hmm. So for an acupuncture practitioner, you can, you know, research uh, bladder 21. Uh, you know, it's the point functions of bladder 21, the point location. You can record that information. Yeah, everything is right there. It yeah, is. It's it's, a, it's actually a fabulous tool. Yeah. I think most people, if they test if they test drive one of those EHRs, will come away kind of excited and not and not as not I, I not agree. just it's a scared. Over, it's always a little overwhelming sure. at first. It's like learning how to drive. You get in the car and it's like, oh, where's the turn signal? Where's yeah. the light? For the brand new car, even if you know how to drive, right. it's always new. So. Yeah. I have some students that sent me some questions because yeah. they knew the interview was going to occur, and I asked them. I said, "If you have questions, now is the time." Okay. And it's perfect because here we are. You're live. You're All right. right here. So one of the questions comes from Ralph Mioni, and his first question for you is: I was a student at MUIH for one trimester. Do you have any plans of instituting a cohort or a similar system here at VUIM? Um, <clears throat> hi, Ralph. I would say that I'm in discussions, you know, with with administration about that. Um, there's pluses and minuses to a cohort system, um, I think, as you know, and 
Because uh, that's what we used at, at MUH, at exactly, MUH. yeah, which I think was what Ralph is probably sort of referencing. Um, so there's pluses and minuses to it, and, and I am j I've been here for a few weeks, and so I'm <laughs> yes. getting getting my feet on the ground, yeah. and this is a, this is one of the discussion points. Um, I can say for sure that the that strengthening the sequencing of courses. You and I were discussing this before we before we right. started this uh, this um, interview. Um, is one of the areas that's going to improve very quickly, mm -hmm. um, I think, and uh, sort of helps streamline the education as well. To make yeah, sure everyone is along the same track. Exactly. Yeah. That's so, I, so I can ensure that, and and we'll and we're going to take a look if if the cohort system is the best model to achieve that. Right. Okay. So his second question that comes also from Ralph uh, is along the same lines, but it's essentially, what are your priorities? for VOIM, I know that's a larger question, but he follows up and he says, what changes are you thinking about? So what changes in addition to curriculum, good, positive changes, whatever whatever you've noticed. I mean, it's been a short time yeah. since you started. You've mm -hmm. already worked on a number of different things. Mm -hmm. You hit the ground running mm -hmm. uh, at a very fast pace. So mm -hmm. what sort of things do you have in mind? I think the main things, um, I mean, can talk about specific areas within the program. I mean, I think there's some probable room to sort of strengthen the clinical experience for um, for students. I think that there needs to be a curriculum, you know, review, and um, so there's some you know policies, procedures in terms of the handbooks. I think are, are likely to be strengthened and clarified. I think which will which be ultimately it sounds boring, but ultimately beneficial for people. <laughs> it's but, important but, to structure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we need a I, good structure to work. But I, but speaking of structure, I mean one one of the key things that is not uh, sort of like a specific uh, area to focus on as much as it is creating creating an overarching kind of uh, functional structure is I want to build greater communication structures with the students and I want to do the same thing with the faculty so I've already set up some meetings with some students to move towards sort of an advisory panel or advisory committee model um, I'd like the students to be able to know that they have a voice um, in what happens here at VUIM, and uh, and I think that's key in my role is being able to get that feedback from the from the people who are having that you know who are on the ground and actually the the primary users you know of the program and so setting up a setting up a, a, a communication structure with faculty and myself excuse me students and myself is key and then also the same with faculty and you and I spoke about this for a few minutes right. before the interview is I want faculty to really take a larger role in uh, brainstorming what's going to benefit the school in service of the students and in service of their patients yeah right. so Ralph we have some streamlining of your mm -hmm. learning to come and we also have some more communication opportunities yes so this is good yeah another student who sent him some questions is Renee <coughs> Lee and I will preface her questions by first saying that she is actually volunteered to go to acupuncturists without borders. Okay, great. I mess up those things. He's, she's right now on her way to Oklahoma. Oh, fantastic! With that organization nice. to help. It's a great organization. With an emergency situation down there that they have set up. So, a shout out to her and to acupuncturists without borders. If students, if you're not aware what that is, take a quick moment after the interview is over and look that up, uh, and chat with Renee when she returns. So, Renee's questions for you are number yeah. one. How do we protect our acupuncture licenses? And how do we protect acupuncture and oriental medicine as a profession? And one of the reasons she's asking this is because there are other professions out there who are starting to utilize tools of acupuncture. So 
physical therapists are utilizing needles for dry needling. Chiropractors may be doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And she also has informed me that now nurses are getting a little bit of training using different forms of acupuncture. So what can we do to sort of, in essence, I think the word protect yourself is a bit defensive, but I think it's a valid place to start from. Sure. Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's an, it's an important topic, I think, for the profession. Um, multifaceted answer. I mean, ultimately, uh, there, I think it's the, the key thing is through education, you know, is educating the public as to the differences of education and training between, for, you know, between acupuncturists and some of the other modalities that you mentioned. So I don't know it off the top of my head, but in, it's different state by state. But, you know, physical therapists have 100 or maybe sometimes 200 hours, um, hours <coughs> you know, in order to become... Uh, certified, I believe is the term, to utilize acupuncture needles in their practice to do sort of something they call, you know, dry needling essentially. Um, there are not a lot of differences from my vantage point of dry needling and acupuncture. Uh, they're uh, the the name, you know, they're using different names, but they're very similar. <clears throat> and and I'm not saying that that doesn't potentially have some level of value, and I think it probably does, you know, for for some people. Um, if they get treat, you know, dry needling techniques with physical therapists. But the public needs to understand that that's very distinct from what an acupuncturist does in terms of the wide breadth of concerns that an acupuncturist can take on and work with with their patient load. Mm -hmm. And the educational difference is enormous. That's a big difference. And I, th and I think that, you know, I think it, you know, most <clears throat> obviously acupuncturists know that and physical therapists know that, but the general, but the public the does not. not yeah. Absolutely. And they just see acupuncture needles and, right. and, and they're, and physical therapists are licensed practitioners, acupuncturists are licensed practitioners. It must be that they're both, this, it's, it's yeah. the same for both. And so education, 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 I think is like absolutely key without, you know, attacking other professions, but just yeah, shining we, we a light on the, on the distinction. With it. We, but we should mm. be acknowledging the fact that we have worked very, very hard, a yeah. long number of hours. We've done all of the necessary things we need to to get beyond certified, actually licensed right, by right. the Board of Medicine to practice a specific type of medicine, not yeah. just a small technique. So we have a wider range. <coughs> a lot of the times, just the schools focus on acupuncture. It's an attractive word. It's an attractive technique. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's something that most people don't really know about. So education, I, I agree with it. I think yeah. it's a major thing. She does have another question for you, sure. which is, uh, what are your thoughts on how to run a profitable business that has a foundational mission of service to the community? It's a good question. I, I think um, I, I share the... I share the concern maybe that's at the heart of the question, um, which is um, how to have acupuncture be a viable form of health care for a wide range of socioeconomic groups, um, essentially. Um, I think that's vitally important. And I can tell you that one of the things I've identified in my short time at VUIM is uh, an area for growth, I think, of the institution is to, is to review the curriculum in regard to how we're teaching students to engage at the at, in community health level, how to utilize acupuncture at the community health level, and how not just to learn about that in the classroom, but to set up clinical experiences where the students actually get to experience uh, you know, using acupuncture in different, in different um, ways and in different segments of the population, essentially. Right. Um, <clears throat> I think 
I think it's a, it's very important for the medicine to stay focused on being viable and accessible um, to that wide range of groups. Um, and I think it just starts in the classroom and starts in modeling it in the clinic um, at the institution. And yes. and different people have different you know sort of policies that they have in their practice. I know practitioners who uh, have sliding scales and practitioners who will donate a certain amount yeah. of treatments you know, uh, per, right. per week um, to patients that aren't able to afford the regular rates. And so there's personal ways to do it. There's, I think, more structural ways to do it. Um, and I'm completely committed uh, here at VUIM is to strengthen that aspect of, the inst of, the, of our offering. A lot of it comes down to someone's individual belief on how they would like to offer it to the public, That's whether it's true. community health, I yep. mean, they want to do this large group setting of people just come in at random times with the sliding scale. You may have people that want to do concierge form and yeah. you pay like a membership fee That's and right. you can come in and get treated. I, it's really up to the practitioner in general, but one of the things that I've noticed, not just in acupuncture and oriental <coughs> medicine itself, is also in various other schools, probably a lot of them, that is when you graduate from college and you step out the door, What's next? A lot of people ask that question, especially if you are going into a field such as this, acupuncture and oriental medicine, you want to open your own clinic. If you don't have stuff set up beforehand, when yeah. you're ready to walk out the door, right. you won't have anywhere to go. That's right. So I think it's a great question from you, Renee, and hopefully Jeff gave you some insight to that. And during your education here, you can build upon that and create your own clinic outside uh, with the support of everyone that you have here inside. So Jeff, I have one more question sure. for you. It's one of my favorite to ask. I'm not quite sure why, but I like the story, if you will. Maybe I get it from Bob. Okay. So I like the practice of uh, hearing people's stories. Um, so what what gets you out of bed every single day? Like what? Why why do you get up and say I want to be an acupuncturist? Or even if you weren't an acupuncturist, what mm -hmm. what is the driving force for you right now to get up out of bed? I know you got a little boy. Yeah. And he probably comes in and says, Daddy, it's time to get up. Well, he, does, like he, doesn't, he doesn't, have to, he doesn't have to come in. He just rolls over. <laughs> oh, he just rolls over. <laughs> or uh, All of that aside, what literally gets you up? What gives you the drive and ambition yeah. to get through? Well, I, I would actually say it's, it is my son, uh, my six-year-old son, just turned six, uh, mm -hmm. Shay. And it, he literally wakes me up in the morning, and he's literally figurative, figuratively what gets me out of bed. And what I mean by that is... You know, I am in this profession ultimately to make a difference. And like so many other people, you know, I'm certainly not unique in that way. I want to make the world a better place. I mean, there's, uh, I see a lot of issues, you know, sort of in this country and in the world. I think there's a lot of room for growth and healing and mm -hmm. strengthening, um, as certainly I can speak for our own, our own country. Um, and I want to make a difference and I want, to, I want to positively contribute to that. And I feel very blessed to be a part of this profession that I actually think has a lot to offer um, the larger community, both in terms of the philosophy of Chinese medicine and also in a very pragmatic level, the medicine, the health care benefits of its, it itself, I think offers a lot to the general public. And I think it's one way to make a difference in the world. And so, uh, you know, the next generation is really what gets me out of bed and being able to do something that I feel passionate about that I think is ultimately positively affecting um, our world and uh, there it is. There it is and I can honestly say 
and I'll own this when I say it, that you have affected the next generation because mm. I am That's the right. next generation. <laughs> so you, uh, That's right. I, I've stepped up to the plate, and I can honestly say that, yes, you have you have had a large effect on me, and I'm uh, sure there's a lot of viewers out there who can say the same. Oh, thanks, and Susan. I know that VUIM will definitely benefit and have a, a strong effect on what you're bringing to the institution. Thank you so much. You're just getting started. So I greatly appreciate it. Jeff Millison here. Do you have any final words of wisdom uh, that you yeah. want to give to everyone? I think... That's I think we've covered it. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Again, I'm Justin Flinner and Jeff Millison here at the UIM, Virginia University of Integrative Medicine. And I look forward to seeing you all next month for Ask the Expert. Have a good one, everyone. The Justin Flinner Podcast is brought to you by MyMentor Medicine, an organization dedicated to helping people improve their lives by learning to empower themselves and take control of their own life. Any form of reproduction or distribution of this podcast or the information contained in this podcast is strictly prohibited. Should you have any questions on how to use this podcast or the information contained within this podcast, please contact MyMentor Medicine at info at mymetromedicine.com dot com.